Struggling to keep track of your story and world? Archivos is for you! More intuitive than a wiki, more extensible than Scrivener, Archivos builds your story bible into your personal, always-on tactical display. Graphical relationship charting, continuity tools, this thing has it all with bonus options for fan engagement and real-time collaboration. Archivos. Story world management done right www.archivos.digital. That's www.archivos.digital. Welcome to the Everyday Novelist. My name is J. Daniel Sawyer, author of nearly 30 books, more than 30 short stories, and numerous articles and scripts and essays, coming to you from up in the crow's nest with my spyglass on this daily voyage through the dicey waters of business, craft, learning, and art in the writing life. Welcome to The Questions, episode 1028. Welcome back to The Everyday Novelist, coming to you from beautiful Shipfire Ranch. Hello. I am your host, J. Daniel Sawyer. And I am your other host, Kitty Nikian. Today we hear from Nicole, who asks... As I was writing, I've realized how much more there is to dialogue, punctuation, and the like. Do you know of good resources that address this? I get tripped up when I have a character that has a longer piece of dialogue and folding in what is going on around him or her and the actions of the characters. I looked up some stuff online, but I don't know that I was that successful in implementation. Um, I don't know of any books on this subject. Uh, it's one of those things that you that you have to feel your way through as far as I know, and you can use other writers as models. Some writers who did this spectacularly well are people like Raymond Chandler, um, Douglas Adams. Um, Douglas Adams is fabulous uh, for dialogue. God, just... So, so the reason that this is a bit weird to get your head around is that when we learn how to write in school... We acquire guard dogs who warn us when there are bears or neighbors about. <laughs> she is loving it up here. So anyway, when we learn how to write in school, we learn the basic formal rules of grammar. You know, each paragraph is a thought. Each um, new, uh, each person speaking has their own paragraph, that kind of thing. Um, you put commas at conjunctions. You put periods to mark the ends of sentences. You use exclamation, you use question marks all the time. You use exclamation points sparingly. That kind of stuff. Those rules in fiction are somewhat looser because in fiction, what you're doing is you're using the punctuation to control the reader's experience of the tonal flow and timing of the dialogue. You'll use things, um, in, in formal writing you might use parentheticals inside of a, um, inside of a thought to denote an aside. But in fiction it's much better to use, say, m dashes to connote someone interrupting themselves. Um, in formal writing, you use an ellipsis to indicate a disjunction in a quotation. You know, blah, 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 dot, 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 blah, 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 blah. Where in the ellipsis, you've cut out a bunch of stuff that's irrelevant to the part you're quoting, and you're just getting the important parts of the thought. In dialogue, an ellipsis indicates a trailing off. 
of the... Um, so, for example, there would be an ellipsis if I uh, said something like that. There would be an ellipsis in that long pause to let the reader know how to read it. So, in a very real sense, your punctuation has to serve two purposes. It has to make your dialogue and thought flow intelligible, but it also serves the purpose, the same purpose that uh, musical notation does. It tells you what instruments are playing, what pace they're playing at, where the rests are, and all of that. Now, you can do rests all sorts of ways. You can do it by putting in a dialogue tag in the middle of a sentence or in between sentences and the thought. You can pause. Um, you can put in a longer pause, and rather than a dialogue tag, you can have... You know, Sadie unwrapped the glasses as she spoke, or it, it doesn't even have to refer to her speaking. She it can, just can refer to what she's doing while she's talking. You can do that in the middle of a dialogue space, or you can do it in a uh, paragraph of its own between if you want to indicate a sharper disjunction. You can also use person A speaks a big thought, the listener is doing something. Person A speaks another big thought. The listener is doing something. Mm -hmm. If person A is having a long soliloquy and you don't want to break it up because the thought is too important, but there's multiple paragraphs, what you do is you end a paragraph and then you do not close quote. You carriage return, new open quote, and go on. If you want to indicate a pause but have relevant information in the middle, Person A speaks, stop, close quote, new paragraph, blah, 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 happened, new paragraph, person A continued, dot, dot, dot. You can put dialogue tags at the beginning of a line or at the end of the line or in the middle of the line, depending on how you want to control your reader's perception of what's going on and how much, um, how much you think you need extra clarity of sticking the dialogue tags at the beginning versus the end. When people speak in short clipped sentences and rapid count, uh, and uh, quick back and forths, the heavy paragraphing with a lot of white space on the page moves the reader's eyes down the page a lot faster and you get a more rushed feel, a more speedy repartee. This works with action too. Paragraphing is the other big skill that's really good to get good at because the amount of white space on the page controls the speed with which the eyes move down the page, which controls the subjective experience of reading it. You're reading the same amount of words in if, if you do a big block of text in one page as you would over loosely formatted dialogue over five pages. But the experience of going through the big block of text is going to take the reader longer so if, the, if it's well-written, their experience is going to be that it's a slower, more contemplative, more deliberate pace. And if they're not involved, it's going to be like, oh, God, when does it get good? And they'll start skimming. So anytime, especially in today's culture where your readers are mostly raised on Twitter and Instagram and Facebook, where there's a lot of very short thoughts, when you go into that long form, you really have to work to keep them. Now, before the advent of television, nobody did this. Before the advent of television, you had much deeper, more um, lyrical writing that 
was dense and had big blocky paragraphs that took up pages and pages and pages and people would go through them because they get swept up in the sensuality of the description and whatnot. Edgar Allan Poe's short stories are really, really good for seeing how this used to be done well. Um, or H.P. Lovecraft if you really like adjectives. But um, even back then, there was room for a more economical style, and Mark Twain is a great exemplar of a more economical style at the time. And this is in the American literary tradition. There are analogs in Britain and other places. Um, or you can go to the French of the period who just loved their text because they were getting paid by the word. Uh, Dickens is the same way. You can tell when they were getting paid by the word because they use a lot of them. But it's very much an issue of composing the music to play in your readers' heads. And you have to do a lot more hand-holding because even your most voracious readers now read a lot less than they consume other media. So what you have to do is you have to hit your readers where they're at and force them into your world and then play their expectations for pace and tone and lyricality by controlling them with white space and punctuation and unusual metaphors and making sure to hit sensory images, especially the senses that they don't get in television. And this is something that a lot of us take a long time to learn, because we were all raised on movies and TV as well. We're used to thinking of sight and sound, and maybe the feel of a place, um, the mood, the vibe. But you got to remember, there's touch, and there's taste, and there's smell. And there's thought. And there's thought, and um, there's uh, the... Um, well, this is a subset of touch, but you don't usually think of it. There's temperature and what it does to the body. And there's the sense of movement of the internal organs and what that does to the mind. And you can use all of those things to bring richness and crispness to your dialogue scenes as well as your narratives, uh, as, as well as your narration. And working on each of those skills and bringing them together and working on them with good point of view and good voice. And voice is a combination of all these things plus word choice and dialect. Um, the vocabulary you use, the level of the vocabulary, the style of the grammar creates an impression in the reader's mind as to what kind of story this is and how they ought to feel about it. Is it archaic and formal? Is it extremely colloquial? Um, is it got a contemporary feeling? Are you using a lot of contemporary slang and contemporary speech patterns? All of these things play into the reader experience. You looked thoughtful. Um, and of course, cultural grounding. Uh, the the um, allusions that your character makes to other stories and historical events in their world that are important to them. Um, if a character is thinking in terms of um, biblical imagery, biblical stories, the ones that aren't just in common parlance, then you're going to create and you're going to add a lot of depth to that character. You're going to tell a lot about what kind of world they were raised in. Not necessarily what they believe or what their religion is, but what kind of world they were raised in by the archetypal forms that come to mind when they encounter a situation. For example, when I was a kid, 
um, we had Showtime and Cinemax, and one when I was a real little kid, I'm talking like five years old, and one of the only movies I was allowed to watch on my own without parents around was Star Trek Two, and so I saw Star Trek Two like fifty times in the first year, and so my speech in real life is and sometimes on this show, is frequently peppered with idioms like why things work on a starship, or um, mind control parasite, or a genesis device, and things like that, because those are part of my baseline uh, 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 mythocopia. So whatever stories your characters were raised on is going to reflect in their thought forms. Whatever world they are most familiar with is going to reflect in their thought forms and speech. Someone who grows up on a space station is not going to be making casual allusions to animals they've never run into, unless that animal is something that's got a big media presence, right? They might think about lions and elephants because those are the sorts of things people hear stories about when they're kids and probably will even when they're off on space stations, but they're not necessarily going to think she vibrated like a leaf in the wind. Now, even if the narrator is saying that, if your character has grown up on a space station, she's not going to vibrate like a leaf in the wind. She's going to vibrate like, um, like a dust bunny in, in an unmaintained duct, or, or like a hamster who's uh, in a room where the air conditioner has been turned up too much, or something like that. So you want to think about those the real secret to doing that kind of thing, and this shows up in the way they speak too, the secret to doing that kind of thing is to notice the habitual metaphors that you run to as an author and to sort of error check them to see if those are appropriate to that character. Sometimes they will be, in which case it's easy. You just sort of write as you. Sometimes it won't be, especially if you like to create characters that are different enough from you that it forces you to explore another aspect of the human experience. And so that's one of those things, initially, probably you'll want to flag for your read-through. But you'll want to sort of practice method acting with your, act- with your characters so that you get into, you internalize the method enough that when you're in their head, you're seeing things as they would see them, not as you are seeing them, so that you don't have to go back and fix it on your proofread. It's a skill that takes a while to build, but it's really, really worth it. It affects narrative, it affects dialogue, it affects point of view. And um, that's one of the tricks to distinguishing character voices. If you're Whatever dissimilarities there are in the backgrounds of the characters that are speaking to each other should show up subtly in their dialogue. And the more you can do that, the less you have to rely on dialogue tags. And the more freedom you have for how you're going to screw with the formatting and the flow of your dialogue scenes. Do you have anything to add? So that's what I got for you. Thank you for the fantastic question. And we'll see you on Monday.
The Everyday Novelist is written by J. Daniel Sawyer and presented by J. Daniel Sawyer and Kitty McKeon and is produced by Artistic Whispers Productions Incorporated. The text is copyright 2021 J. Daniel Sawyer and the production is copyright 2021 Artistic Whispers Productions Incorporated. This podcast is released under a Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial Notarifitives License and all other rights are reserved to their respective owners. Join the conversation. Submit a question, leave a comment, or a creative death threat. Or find me at jdsawyeronminds.com or hit me at feedback at jdsawyer.net. We can't do it without you. Dateline. The future. Humankind stretches out to the stars. Maybe they go on generation ships. Maybe they live on space stations. Maybe terraforming bases dominate the worlds of tomorrow. In these hostile places, only two things seem certain. With people come conflicts. And in manufactured environments, the wrong kind of conflict will damage your air supply. So forget regular guns, needle lasers, ray guns, and anything else that can screw up your habitat. I want stories where the violence and conflict depend on ingeniously adapting ancient weapons to future environments, where this technological shift solves old social problems and creates new ones, and where cultures and religions arise around those weapons and provide them contexts, both accepted and outlaw, within their societies. Give me swashbucklers, knife fighters, booby trappers, baton wielders, pirates, mafiosos, Robin Hoods, cops, priests, robbers, fugitives, and assassins. Give me swords in space. This is a paying market. Submit your story to editor at everydaynovelist.com. Be sure to use the phrase swords in space in the subject line. 8,000 words maximum, 2,000 words minimum. See you on the slush pile.